Hi, everyone. My name is Miriam Idas. I'm the volunteer and in-kind coordinator at Sarah Zinn. I'm here with Dina Hasabola, and she'll talk a little bit about traumatic brain injury. So, Dina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, I know you're joining all the way from Seattle, so we're really excited to hear about your experiences out there, um, especially compared to Chicago. But um, before we actually dive into the questions that we have for you, can you talk a little bit about your credentials, who you are, if you can share that with our listeners? Sure. So my name is Dina Hasabala. Um, I am a, a physician that has specialized in brain injury medicine rehabilitation. So what that means is uh, after my medical school training, I completed a residency in physical medicine and rehabilitation, um, and that was at the Loyola University Medical Center in Maywood, Illinois. And then I completed a fellowship training in brain injury medicine out of Georgetown uh, in Washington, D.C. as part of the MedStar National Rehab Network. Um, and I've been in practice uh, since completing training uh, since about 2015. Um, and I'm also a Chicagoan, born and raised, um, and recently moved to Seattle, Washington. Um, and part of my practice uh, history is um, inpatient rehabilitation, working with patients who have suffered traumatic brain injuries, uh, stroke, non-traumatic brain injuries, um, and then also uh, working in the outpatient setting uh, with concussion patients, um, and also dealing with the sequelae of traumatic brain injuries and stroke, uh, you know, after the acute period in the first few months. Thanks, Dina. Can you talk to us a little bit about what is a traumatic brain injury for folks who might not be familiar with this term or what that actually means? Sure. So a traumatic brain injury is um, a level of trauma that can happen to the head or neck um, uh, or specifically uh, to the head. Um, and where there is a change in function um, in the person uh, with or without imaging findings, depending on the severity of the traumatic brain injury. Um, and the, you know, the mechanism that's, that's critical um, to, you know, to be understood is that there has to be some kind of, of force. Um, so like you know, trauma, including blast injuries, like our, our OEF, OIF, uh, veterans and active duty members that are suffering the traumatic brain injuries uh, due to blast injuries, for example, um, injuries from direct trauma, whether it's um, athletes or, or or victims of domestic violence, um, you know, things like having somebody uh, shake your head and neck uh, or, or, you know, strike your head and neck significantly causing enough trauma to cause some level of change, um, either at a imaging level finding or, or, or a non- or non so traumatic brain injury is an injury caused by a force from the outside and a force can be a blast related injury um, it can be a direct trauma it can be um, as a part of a trauma to the head and neck um, and there can be imaging findings of things like hemorrhage or bleeding um, there can also be uh, negative imaging findings but there could be a change in function meaning how the person is um, you know, in terms of dealing with symptoms. So there can be changes in sleep and mood. Um, there can be uh, new headaches. Uh, so it really, you know, depends on kind of what is happening. Um, and what you'll see a lot in uh, outside of athletics and in terms of sports and concussion, you'll also see in our active duty uh, OEF, Operation Enduring Freedom and o OIF, or Operation Iraqi Freedom, our active and, and veterans, who suffered a, a great number of traumatic brain injuries because of blast injuries related to their, their uh, service duty.
Thank you for that. So are there, I know you talked a little bit about the symptoms and signs of it along with how it's diagnosed. Um, are there like recommendations or like, what would you recommend for someone who has experienced blunt force trauma? Are there certain tests that someone can request? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So, you know, depending on the mechanism of injury, you know, if you suspect you've, and, and just to uh, be very clear. So currently I'm employed by the University of Washington Department of Rehab Medicine, um, but I'm talking here as an individual and in no way representing the University of Washington. Um, so, but talking as a, as a brain injury medicine specialist uh, individually. So if you suspect you've had a traumatic brain injury, the, the, the number one thing is that recognizing number one, the event. So some people may have a loss of consciousness, some people may not. And then seeking out care early on. And so most people will actually show up to the emergency room or an urgent care um, for an evaluation um, and be told to, you know, that if they've been diagnosed with a concussion, which um, is under the, the umbrella term of a traumatic brain injury um, in general, but it's a, it's a mild traumatic brain injury uh, in comparison. Uh, well, I, I shouldn't say that. If you're showing up to the emergency room and an urgent care, just knowing that you've had a traumatic brain injury is sometimes not even recognized. So knowing if you've had trauma to the head or neck, noticing you had vomiting or headache or symptoms, or the fact that you know, you're know you worried about the potential for these symptoms, going earlier rather than later is always recommended. Um, and so most people are, will either show up to an emergency room or an urgent care, and sometimes their primary care office and be told to do quote unquote bed, uh, brain rest um, when brain rest is really only indicated for the first 24 to 72 hours. Um, and then there should be a, a guided return to activities, whether that's school or work um, or, or other uh, you know activities in terms of sports, et cetera. So it's really important to recognize what is going on in your body. If, an, if sometimes uh, if a trauma happens and then also recognizing when you need to see someone early on um, as most people will not show up until symptoms are severe and sometimes that could be months out so what do you think about the current research on traumatic brain injuries like is there research out there um, can you talk a little bit about that sure so there's been a, a larger movement in the last um, I would say 20 years in terms of recognizing the fact that um, traumatic brain injuries have a huge impact on the United States and the world, um, but specifically to where we are in the United States um, in terms of uh, effects on, you know, the finances, uh, the overall cost to both individuals and the, and the country and, and taxpayers, um, as well as the effects on families um, and, and um, the, the social structure. So um, even though it's, it's not always recognized, it's definitely has, has more recognition, I would say, in the last five to 10 years, um, especially when it comes to like sports and, and um, the media, as people have, you know, seen all the, the, the statistics now on uh, a lot of different athletes with the movie that came out, you know, so it's definitely talked about a lot more. Uh, parents are recognizing the risks more and more as there are more parents, I would say, out there who are now, you know, questioning whether they want to put their kids in contact sports, for example, um, which I don't think was the case uh, 20 years ago. But again, uh, this is just kind of my subjective uh, insight into this. So um, it is, it's definitely getting better. When it comes to traumatic brain injury and domestic violence, 
specifically, um, this is where I feel like the, the topic is is known, um, but not as well recognized as it is in sports. Um, and I really think it comes it comes down to a, a number of factors. Number one, there's a lot more money in sports, right? Number two, um, when it comes to issues related to women, I feel like it's not always the popular topic, even though domestic violence can affect both, um, you know, uh, cisgender women and, and other um, genders. So it, it, there's a number of factors, I think, that it have a, an impact on why this is not something as widely recognized as sports concussions and traumatic brain injuries. So you mentioned that with sports injuries, those tend to get more attention. And so I'm curious to know, what can we do to make the focus of traumatic brain injuries on domestic violence instead of sports injuries? Right. Well, I think, you know, there needs to be a, a few focuses. So number one, and and this is where, you know, I think the healthcare network in general um, needs to play more of a role is is being able to comfortably talk about this with patients, right? So the screenings in the emergency room, the screenings when it comes to going to a primary care provider, um, you know, if if anyone is being evaluated, either an outpatient or inpatient, especially for traumatic brain injury, there should be some level of discussion about, are you feeling safe in the home? You know, what is the relationship um, in their lives? And is there any history of uh, trauma or or domestic violence. And so I think that's one piece that uh, has improved in terms of the training across, whether it's nurses, physicians, um, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, et cetera, um, is, is trying to make this the standard of care, but I, I don't think it's it's where it needs to be just yet. So that's the, the first phase. I think the second phase is you know, um, in terms of from a, a, the domestic violence networks themselves, whether at the state level or city level, it's really important that we talk to the clients and find out how they're doing and making sure that they know they need to, you know, potentially access healthcare um, because there can always be a fear of going to a doctor. There can be a fear of being evaluated, right? Um, or not even knowing like, oh, you know, my partner was always shaking me all the time or when they strangulated me, I had no idea that I might have lost oxygen and I may have had an injury um, and, and how that has been impacting me and not realizing that maybe the headaches and the sleep issues um, could be related. So again, I think it, it, it there's a number of ways we need to recognize it and it, it really is coming from a number of areas where each entity um, needs to take a stronger uh, leadership role in terms of helping people be aware of it evaluate it and recognize it. So I think when people hear brain injuries, it sounds a little scary. And because our brains do control a lot of emotion, you know, the way we think, um, the way we feel, our memory. Um, do you by any chance know, um, like if the brain can actually make a full recovery after a traumatic brain injury has occurred? Sure, I mean, it will, it will definitely depend on the mechanism of the injury. Um, if there, depending on if there was a loss of consciousness, um, if there is any structural damage seen, um, and and I, when I say this, I mean specifically on just you know plain uh, CT or tomography um, of the brain and or MRI with and without contrast. So I'm not talking about any of the. There's a lot of special imaging out there uh, beyond that, 
in a clinical setting that they're looking at research. So um, again, loss of consciousness, you know, if they were hospitalized, if there were medical complications, um, if they have any past medical history or diagnoses that may impact it. Um, and then, you know, what kind of rehabilitation that they had afterwards, depending on the, the severity of their injury. So yes, some people can make um, quite a, a, a recovery. Um, some people may have ongoing uh, findings in their brain despite having improvements. And so it really depends on kind of how that person is functioning and, and it can take time. So some people it can, depending on the severity, it can be three months. Um, and then some people it can be a year to two years. So again, uh, there are a number of factors that play a role in um, not only prognosis, so kind of what you look like after uh, ongoing treatment, but also, you know, the overall outcome from the acute care treatment, so in the hospital or clinic setting, and then ongoing uh, recovery and, and rehab. So my final question to you is, have you noticed any differences with your work, you know, from, because you were in Chicago before, um, and now you're in Seattle. So are there differences when it comes to traumatic brain injuries, or the, in general, the work that you're doing? Yeah, so one of the things that I found quite striking when I moved from the Midwest to Seattle, Washington, was the access to level one trauma centers. So um, when you look up a hospital, uh, every hospital has a different designation in terms of what level of care they can provide, right? So some places are stroke centers for excellence, right? Some places um, can provide a certain level of trauma care, but may not be able to provide all depending on, you know, how many neurosurgeons they have on staff or, or uh, trauma teams they have on staff. Um, and so in Illinois, for example, um, if you were to look up the level one trauma centers, you would find more than a dozen in the whole state of Illinois. Um, and so level one trauma center being that that's the, the highest level of trauma care that's needed um, for severe trauma cases, for example. And so in the Midwest, in the it's specifically in the Chicago area and suburbs, you have more than uh, three to four level one trauma centers within a 30 mile radius, if I'm not mistaken. Um, here in Seattle, there is one level one trauma center, which is uh, Harborview Medical Center as part of the University of Washington in King County. Um, and they serve not only the whole state, but they serve Wyoming, Alaska, Montana, and Idaho. And it was shocking to me to see um, one hospital system specifically treating the five state radius for traumas. Um, so a lot of Patients are airlifted from these states um, when there is a, a trauma that requires a level one trauma evaluation and treatment. Um, and so that was the biggest uh, shock for me coming from the Midwest and not realizing that not every state has, you know, dozens of level one trauma centers and that there are states that have none. Um, and the, this, you know, quote unquote whammy region is what they call it uh, for the state acronym. So Washington, Wyoming, um, Alaska, Montana, and Idaho. Um, having one level one trauma center to service all of its people was quite uh, quite a shocker. Um, and when you think about domestic violence, one of the, the biggest issues is not just um, recognizing it, but access to care. So imagine not being in an area where you have a level one trauma center and, and the professionals who, you know, being able to uh, recognize the fact that you've had a traumatic brain injury um, and being able to access that care. So definitely uh, something I think that is a big difference uh, coming from the Midwest to here.
that actually is like really mind blowing to hear. Like, so you're saying there is out of five states, there is only one place that a person can go to if they experience a head injury. Is that correct? If they experience a head injury that warrants a level one trauma center evaluation, to be clear. So it has to be Mm a pretty significant injury. And that can be for spinal cord injury. That can be for polytrauma, like with car accidents, even without a a brain injury. It could include things um, like traumas that result in burns um, and other types of wounds. So, yeah, it's there's one level one trauma center here and and kind of what they are able to provide despite the five state radius is pretty amazing. So um, I would say as the individual and, and not necessarily as the employee, um, I, I have a lot of respect for the fact that this hospital continues. Har- Harborview Medical Center as part of the University of Washington in King County continues to try to help not just the people of Seattle and, and the state of Washington, but four other states on top of it. So it's pretty pretty amazing people because I think it, it, it takes a lot um, out of folks knowing that they're having folks coming in from other states and this is the only place that they can go to for care for, for level one traumas. Wow. Well, thank you so much for joining the podcast today and for your time and information. I had no idea about a lot of this, you know, like, um, so I appreciate you sharing this with me, but also with our listeners. Um, are there anything, any final thoughts that you have or anything else that you would like to share for our listeners before we conclude? Well, number one, thank you so much for inviting me. Um, I, I love Sarah's in, I, uh, loved working with you guys, um, from the first day, um, I Google searched and, and looked up your training. Um, and that was, you know, something that I'm so happy I did. Um, and I really enjoyed the domestic training. And uh, so thank you for all you do for the community um, and the area and uh, the amazing work your whole team does. And it's there is no amount of thanks uh, that could ever be enough because I, I know you guys hustle to to care for a lot of different people and their families. Number two, to the, to the people in healthcare specifically, please talk about domestic violence. You know, one of my criticisms of my training was that it wasn't until I was in practice that I even knew about the amount of domestic violence and traumatic brain injuries that, that were happening um, in terms of correlation and even the, the ability to access um, experiences or, or rotations specifically that took care of people with domestic violence. So, you know, you when you're in training, there are opportunities to go to sports events and provide coverage. Um, but, you know, it was not anything I ever heard of about like going to a domestic violence shelter and providing, you know, evaluations or volunteering at one. So from a from a healthcare perspective, I would say to people in healthcare and people who are entering healthcare, you know, please talk about it bring it up, ask your patients of all genders and backgrounds, how they're doing, making sure they're safe. And then on an individual uh, level, you know, again, um, find out, you know, in your area, you know, who is providing domestic violence support in my area and, you know, what kind of resources are needed and, and what can be done to help. And, you know, places like Sarah's Inn is a, is a great example of um, entities that are trying to support um, multiple uh, not just people, but cities, communities, um, and also finding ways to connect others and other communities, that, you know, especially when there's an access issue. So I think it, it takes a very big uh, team and it needs to come from multiple, multiple people. Thank you so much again. Um, for folks that are listening, Dina is one of our 
one of the many 60 plus crisis line volunteers that we have. And so thank you so much for the work that you're doing at the hospital. Thank you for your work on the crisis line. Um, this was a really great topic to discuss with you. And I'm so excited that I got the chance to sit with you and talk about this. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you as well. It is that time of the year again. Sarah Zinn is collecting toys for our annual holiday gift project event. This year, we hope to provide gifts for over 300 children and teens impacted by domestic violence. If you are just as excited as we are for this event, here is how you can support. Donate new and unwrapped toys from our wish list. You can also organize a toy drive at your office, school, or with your family and friends. Spread the word. Share information about our holiday gift project with your network. To learn more about how you can get involved, please visit our website at sarahsin.org. Together, we can improve the lives of those affected by domestic violence and break the cycle of violence for future generations. Thank you.